0: Good morning. My name is Tom Ricks, and I'm one of the pastors here at Green Tree. It's good to see all of you this morning. One of the things I love about Green Tree is there's so many ways to exercise the generosity that God puts in our hearts. Uh, we we have our offering churches every Sunday morning. We can, we can place our, our offerings there, and those are important. They facilitate uh, the ministries of Green Tree. They're very important, uh, but there's also the Nicaragua night where we can help Uh, our students go and have a missions experience at a young age and begin to have uh, God create mercy and generosity and kindness in their hearts. Uh, the, um, The affordable Christmas, the uh, the bags that we do every month for Kirk care and providing meals for folks uh, that don't have it. There's just, there's a wonderful spirit of generosity at Greentree. If you can't come to that night, but you do have something you'd like to donate, you may do that. If you have some Cardinals tickets or actually we have Blues tickets, see me privately, but um, it, there are, you know, a lot of, I'm I'm donating a round of golf with me. So if you want to feel better about your golf game, come and buy that because if you play golf with me, you'll f- feel better about about your golf, but I am thankful for uh, the the trip that those guys get to go on. And Eric, I appreciate you and Elisa's leadership in that. Uh, so we're starting a new series this morning. Uh, we have been studying "Dig In" for the last ten weeks. We're looking at our our tagline for Green Tree: "Dig In, Branch Out, and Live It Up." So for the first part of the year, we were digging into the Book of Colossians and to the preeminence of Jesus, and now we're going to move into branching out and engaging our culture. Uh, and the temptation when you, when you think about this is to think about culture, think about those folks out there and what might they need and what, what might I have that I can provide for them. But I want to kind of flip that a little bit. And the, the sermon of the title this morning kind of says it all. How would you like to live next door to you? How would we be as a neighbor? So I want you to watch the screen. We're going to give you a couple examples of neighbors that maybe aren't the most neighborly. I'm sure none of you are neighbors like that. Uh, But we we tend to think about, uh, you know, I hope the folks that live next door to me are really nice. They'll fit in well with the neighborhood. They'll, you know, there'll be people with whom we get along. And Jesus challenges that notion. Uh, That's part of the reason why one of our taglines is Branch Out. Jesus says, as you're connected to me, you have the opportunity then to see the world the way I see the world which is to bring love and compassion and kindness. But in order to do that, you start with the inward reflection uh, before you can begin to branch out. So we're going to ask the question over the next 10 weeks, how do disciples live out their faith in modern-day culture? Or or would I want me for a neighbor would be another way to say it. It's going to be a topical study. It's not going to be contained in any one particular book of the Bible, but we're going to look at some of the topics, some of the issues... Uh, in our culture today. We will spend uh, some time on race relations. We will talk a little bit about uh, wealth and poverty. We'll look at human sexuality. All of these uh, these topics are topics that are kind of front burner topics in our culture today. And Scripture has a great deal to say about every one of those topics and the other ones that we will be covering. What we're going to do today is just kind of hit an overview. Kind of what should the tone be in the life of a disciple of Jesus as they think about engaging in their community, engaging in their culture. We're going to go back uh, to a passage that may be familiar to a good number of you. If you've been uh, a believer in Jesus for a while, we're gonna be looking at a small section of the Sermon on the Mount out of Matthew chapter five. You can turn there in your Bibles or you can follow along on the screen. Jesus is talking to his disciples, which means if you are a follower of Jesus this morning, He's talking to you. If you're here this morning, you're wondering about Christianity, you're not sure about uh, all it means and and who Jesus is and and what his teaching is all about, uh, this would be an excellent opportunity for you to listen in on, on what Jesus thinks should define the life of those who follow him. Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 16, hear the word of God. Jesus talking to his disciples says, you are the salt of the earth. and may give glory to your father who is in heaven. This is the reading of God's holy and perfect word to him alone be glory. Let's pray. Father, we uh, we thank you for the opportunity to be in worship this morning. There's so many places around the world where Christians are in hiding today as they worship for fear of imprisonment, for fear of persecution, fear even of being put to death. And we can uh, Open the curtains up and let the sun shine in and publicly, without apology or fear of retribution, bring glory to the Lord Jesus. Father, remind us that that is not how the rest of the world is defined. And Father, help us to never take for granted the blessing that you have given us when it comes to the opportunity for public worship. Thank you that we can gather together as friends, as brothers and sisters in Christ, as newcomers, as people who have known each other for years and, and, and everything in between. And we can uh, come and give praise and give worship. We can come and consider what it means to be a follower of Jesus. We can, we can hear your word applied to our lives. We can sing praises of worship. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to be gathered together this morning. And now, Lord, help us to worship you with our minds, with our intellect. Uh, Lord, we don't come here to hear man's words and philosophy. <laughs> Uh, We need the eternal truth of God to permeate our hearts and our minds, and it's that for which we pray. Lord, forgive my sin. Please don't let me stand in the way of someone missing what you have to say to them this morning. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, let me tell you where we're going right off the bat. Uh, This morning, we're going to consider this notion. The life of Jesus' disciple should point people to the moral character of God and to salvation through His Son, the Lord Jesus. This passage calls us both salt and light, and so the sermon, in a sense, is trying to capture that, that we have a responsibility to reflect the moral character of God, and we also have the responsibility to be a witness for salvation through the Lord Jesus. I think that's where uh, the teaching leads us to this morning with the two metaphors that, that Jesus gave His disciples years ago, and gives us this morning. So let's jump in. Let's talk about salt. That's the first of the two. We have two points, salt and light this morning. Salt, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under by people's feet. If salt is pure, if it hasn't lost its saltiness, as Jesus warns us about, we'll come to the warning in just a minute, it is the most effective preservative on the planet. If you live in the middle of the desert where it's 120 degrees and you've just, you know, you've just hunted your dinner and you've caught it and it's got to last you for more than a few hours, it's going to immediately begin to decay. Life is all, decay is all around life is the way it should be said. Anybody that has ever gone out hunting knows how quickly or fishing, you catch the fish, you clean them, you got to get them on ice pretty quick. Or you go out and you, you make the kill, you've got to get that, that deer, you've got to get that venison to the butcher shop, you've got to get it on ice pretty quick. Well, in Jesus' day and age, there were no uh, refrigerators, there were no ice makers, but the preservative of the day was salt. And if you read historically, if you read into antiquity, you find that that vats of saline solution, You could have, hunters would actually take their, their catches and they would dunk them and, and soak them in saline solution, and it was as good as any modern day refrigeration system you could find. It would preserve salt meat. Jesus says you are a preservative in culture. What kind of preservative? Well, Jesus says that, that our presence as his disciples is meant to stunt the process of cultural decay. Now, Jesus says you are the salt of the earth. He doesn't say you can be the salt of the earth if you want to, or if you have some spare time. He says you are the salt. So, so he hasn't chosen anybody else for this task. He's chosen his disciples to be the salt, and the word is emphatic to the extent that Jesus is saying, you alone are the salt of the earth. Now, before our heads get puffed up, and before we get real excited that Jesus has named us the salt of the earth, let's step back and think about what that means. That ought to actually alarm you a bit if you're a disciple, not necessarily make you feel pretty good about yourself. You're not chosen to be the salt because you're naturally the saltiest. I am not naturally the saltiest, nor are you. We've been chosen simply because the grace of God is living in us, and we are Jesus' disciples. Therefore, by definition, he calls us to have an impact on the world in which we live. In other words, he immediately says, if you're going to follow me, you got to love the world. If you're going to be my disciple, you have to care about your culture your community. You have to care about the decay, the social, the moral decay that is prevalent in every society because your role is to bring God into your cultures. As disciples, Jesus says, I am calling you to stunt the moral decay of this world, not through self-righteousness, but through purity of God's word. Not aligned to any one particular political party, Or any one particular church for that matter. But as my disciples, you're called to have an impact on the culture around you. I think it's encouraging to know that that God wants us to be his witnesses in this world. That God has not abandoned this world. That God has not thrown up his arms and said, well, they're just not getting the picture, so I'm going to move on. But rather, God has called us and given us the task and the opportunity... To live in such a way that people would say, maybe God is some being that I should take seriously. Maybe I should consider what he has to say in my life. The role of discipleship in the sense of salt is to be a preservative. But it's also, salt has another uh, activity in our lives, does it? And a a more common one for us today, it's a flavor enhancer. How many times have you had that omelet and you you kind of took a bite and went, boy, that needs... You know, typically you don't say that needs some paprika, right? Oh boy, that that could use some cloves, right? No, that needs a little bit of salt. Why, it brings out the flavor in the meal and we're called to enhance. So whether we are at work or at play, whether we are at sport or at dance or at music, whether we're in service or considering generosity or joy or even suffering and sorrow and hardship, Discipleship gives a deeper and richer and fuller meaning to our lives, but sometimes that's not the case. Sometimes we we act as if there is no zest, as if there's no zeal in following the Lord Jesus. Oliver Wendell Holmes, one of the greatest poets our nation has ever produced, right? Oliver Wendell Holmes' father was a congregational pastor outside of Boston. And he hoped that his son would follow in his footsteps. And later on in life, Holmes wrote this about considering whether or not he should be a pastor. He said, I might have entered the ministry if certain clergymen I knew had not acted and looked so much like undertakers. (laughs) How often do people look at disciples of Jesus who are supposed to be filled with the joy of the Lord? I don't mean that we're happy and giddy all the time when things are difficult, but there's a richer and fuller sense of life in knowing what Christ has done for us and knowing we belong to him. And yet people look at us and we're the most dour people walking around on the planet, spending all our time telling people what they're doing wrong, instead of celebrating the grace and the mercy of Christ in us. Our service in the name of Jesus flavors this world. That's why you should support and I should support Nicaragua Night and getting our kids to understand missions at an early age. That's why we should uh, celebrate the the service day that we have every June called 2028. You're going to be hearing about that in May because it gives us the opportunity to bring the flavor of Christ into service of this world. Teresa of Avila, uh, in thinking about what it meant to be a disciple of Jesus, wrote the following, Christ has no body now on earth but ours. No hands but ours, no feet but ours. Ours are the eyes to see the needs of the world. Ours are the hands with which to bless everyone now. Ours are the feet with which he is to go about doing good. And so she wrote the following prayer based on that thought. Lord, turn our praises into hands that clothe the naked, arms that comfort the afflicted, tables that host the stranger, and shoulders that support the weary, so that your name may be praised by those who live and die with their backs against the wall. What flavor are you and I bringing to our community? Is there a difference that people can see? What our neighbors say, I live next to some really salty Christians who seem to know what it means to really experience true joy and true excitement about life. Yes, they suffer. Yes, they struggle along the rest of it, but they seem to do so with a demeanor that points to something much deeper and much richer and much fuller than I've experienced in my own life. Theologian Kent Hughes writes this about our saltiness. We need to ask ourselves if there's any difference between our approach to materialism for example than that of the world. Are there any distinctions between our approach to pleasures and that of unbelievers? Do we approach happiness differently? Is there a difference in our application of ethics? Does our compassion know the limitations of the world or is it stronger? The answers to these questions will reveal whether the salt is penetrating the meat or if the salt is being adulterated. We must answer these questions with a conscience informed by God's words. Notice that that Hughes points out if we allow culture to define us, instead of allowing the gospel to define us, we lose our effectiveness. If our main concern is to be accepted in our culture, to not make any waves, to not rock the boat, to make sure that that people know that Christians are passive and kind and just go along to get along, then we won't be the salt of the earth. We'll, We'll be useless. We will be meaningless in our generation. Jesus makes that incredibly clear for us. And yet, he gives us the opportunity to live in a way that impacts our culture in one of the areas where it's most needed to stop the decay of the presence of sin and spiritual corruption in our lives. I wonder if our neighbors know whether or not they live next to some salty folks. Jesus says you're the salt of the earth, but secondly he says you are the light of the world in verse 14. Now, that that may grab your attention. If you've been a Christian for a little while, you've studied the scriptures at all, in particular, if you've read uh, the Gospels in the New Testament, you might have a thought rolling around the back of your mind that says, wait a minute, now isn't, isn't Jesus the light of the world? Didn't he claim to be the light of the world? And you would be correct. In John chapter 8, Jesus is standing at the temple, and it's, and it's in the morning, and it's actually the morning after one of the biggest parties in the nation of Israel had taken place the night before, okay? Okay. And the party that took place the night before, on the height of Passover, in Jesus' day and age, there was a ceremony called the ceremony of the illumination of the temple. And they would get giant vats of oil, and they would build gigantic uh, uh, torches, and the oils would feed the torches, and they would light them, and all night long, they would burn in such a way as to illuminate the temple. But ancient historians actually tell us that when these, when these torches were lit, you could actually see Jerusalem, the entire city, for miles and miles around. And the notion was that the temple was illuminated. Why? Because that's the presence of God. The temple represents God dwelling with his people and God bringing his light to his people. So Jesus, and, and, and that night, there's all kinds of celebration. I mean, it is a party. And people are dancing in the streets and their are bands playing on almost every street corner and their are merchants are out and everybody's having a great time and now it's the next morning and the lamps have gone out and they've been extinguished and life is kind of getting back to normal so to speak and the guys are out kind of cleaning the streets and and, and pilgrims are starting to come into the temple again to worship one last time before they head back home. And Jesus stands up in front of everybody and says, "You're close, but you're not quite there. These torches aren't the light. And Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Anyone who follows me will never walk in darkness. And Jesus makes this incredibly bold claim. He says, if you want light, you want, a, you want the Olympic flame on steroids, look at me. I can point you to God and to his grace and to his mercy. And so now we read in the context of of John 8, we read Matthew 5, where Jesus says, you are the light of the world. Well, now wait a second. Which is true? Well, they're both true at the same time, but the nature of the lights are very different. Jesus is the light as the sun shines in the sky. We're the light as the moon reflects the light of the sun. We say there's a full moon tonight, right? But what we're actually technically saying is what? That the moon is receiving uh, unadulterated light from the sun, and therefore the entire disk is illuminated clearly. And it actually looks as if it's giving light to the world. If you want the technical definition for a full moon, I looked it up. I don't know why. I guess I was a little bored on uh, Thursday afternoon. The phase of the moon in which it is visible as a fully illuminated disk. This phase occurs when the moon is on the opposite side of the earth as the sun and not In the earth's shadow so there's nothing blocking the sun from hitting the moon in the same way we are reflective light we only shine when we're exposed fully to jesus this is our witness for the gospel message this is not drawing people to us but it's drawing people to him by reflecting his light into their lives how do you reflect the light of jesus to others Part of it can certainly be in what you say, how you speak with others, and it must be. At some point, people need to hear the gospel message, but it begins with seeing, begins with observing that there's something different. There's a little more humility. There's a little more quickness to to ask for forgiveness and to acknowledge that, that we aren't always right. There's a willingness to accept people that are rejected by society while still standing on the truth of God's word you can you can be salt and light at the same time but it takes grace and it takes wisdom and it takes kindness and it takes compassion and all of that Christ gives us in full measure if we will expose ourselves to him and the two metaphors that Jesus uses when it comes to light A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. He's standing just outside of Jerusalem, right? Clearly, that's a picture that is is easy to understand. As you're traveling to Jerusalem, you can see the city from a distance. But what does the city in Jesus' day represent? It represents refuge. It represents safety. And we live in a dangerous world. We live in a very broken world. We can hurt each other. We're dangerous to each other at times if we're honest, With our tempers, with our words, with our actions, we can be very detrimental to one another. The world itself is a very unsafe place in which to live. There's hatred in our world. There's murder in our world. There's theft in our world. And the city was a place of refuge. Jesus says, church, disciples, my followers, you're to be a place of refuge. The gospel is given so that people can have safety in their relationship with God. But we're also called to be what the light of the world that illuminates the pathway. Have you ever gotten up in the middle of the night, maybe when the kids were little and you heard the baby crying and you needed to go get the baby and somebody left a laundry basket where they weren't supposed to leave it, right? That's not a, after you pick yourself up off the floor and you've called out to Jesus a couple of times, right? (laughs) Right? Or you stubbed your toe on something that wasn't supposed to be there, right? You had a few choice words for for the people in your family. But if the light's on and you just trip and fall over it, it's on you, right? Because you can see it, it's right there. How's the world going to know the grace and the mercy and the compassion of Jesus if they don't see it in your life and they don't see it in my life? That's on us. And Jesus says, you're the light of the world. Show people the way. This can be challenging for a couple of reasons. First of all, when you think about the world, there are oftentimes where the world lives in intentional darkness, where the world actually chooses Darkness over light. Uh, one of the most famous verses in the Bible, John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. But three verses later, Jesus is still in conversation with this guy named Nicodemus, and he says this. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love darkness rather than light because their works were evil. In other words, Jesus says, this is going to be a challenge for you to be the light of the world because people don't always want the light. And you and I understand that. If we're honest, we understand that. There are things that, have you ever had this experience where you did something or you said something and you went, boy, I hope there's nobody around that knows me. I hope nobody saw me do that, right? Okay. we've all been embarrassed at, a, at one time or another by our lack of, of love for other people, by our impatience, by our, our angry bursts, whatever the whatever the case may be. And we kind of cringe at it. Why is that? Well, we love darkness more than light sometimes. We'd rather our deeds kind of stay hidden. And the world thinks that way as well. There's a quote out of Macbeth, Act 1, uh, scene, uh, scene 5. Lady Macbeth is plotting this murder, and she's, she's asking that the darkness would, would stay around her, that it would be so dark that, she not, that her crime not become uncovered, right? Come thick night, and pall thee in the doomless smoke of hell, that my keep knife see not the wound it makes, nor heaven peep through the blanket of the dark. Even in the old English, you, could, you can capture what's going on there. She says, I want it to be so dark that I can't even see the knife plunge into my victim's heart. Men love darkness rather than light. So it's going to be a challenge for us to stand and live in the light. But also we need to understand more personally that my own sin distorts my witness. We said that this, the moon is in fullness when it stands opposite and there's no shadow of the earth. What are the shadows of sin that are standing between me and my Lord Jesus? What is it that is hindering His light reflecting off of me because fully exposed to the light of Jesus, my good works will point people to my heavenly father. That's what verse 16 says. People will see your good works and glorify your father in heaven. Now you, you got to grasp the context of this statement, right? We read this and they will see your good works and will glorify your father in heaven. And sounds so church-like, right? Okay. Here's what Jesus is saying. People are going to look at you and they're going to see that you're doing some incredible service. Or you're being kind when, when, when nobody else would be kind. Or, or you have a peace about you when, when, when everything is going crazy, but you just see. There's something that, that you're exhibiting that nobody else does. And people go, there's only one way that happens. <laughs> and that's a miracle, right? There's no way Tom Ricks is that nice of a guy. That is truly miraculous. Praise God that God did something to Tom Ricks. Otherwise, this would be a disaster, Right? Jesus is saying people will be shocked at the way you act. Why? Because it's not the way you naturally act. you got to be willing to admit that. you got to be willing to hear that because that makes you cry out to Jesus. That makes you say, Lord, don't let anything stand in the way. Don't don't let a shadow get in between the two of us because I need to be a reflection of you, not a reflection of me. And when I reflect you, people will say, praise God, that's truly something amazing. We're called to be the light of the world in about uh, three weeks on a Friday night in here, we're going to clear out all these chairs. We're going to clear out the atrium uh, because there's a group of students at Kirkwood High School that can't afford to go to dinner before prom. And prom is on uh, April 22nd this year. And for a few years at at Kirkwood High School, there've been two Christians who have said, wouldn't it be cool if we could figure out a way to give these kids a dinner? It's not their fault they were born in poverty. And and we're going to charge them a little something for the ticket. They're going to pay five bucks for the ticket. But wouldn't it be great if they could sit at a table that had white tablecloth and had all the fixings and all the trimmings and have people actually come and serve them? Not somebody give them a gift card to go to McDonald's so they can have something to eat, but actually provide an amazing experience for them so they can go to prom with their heads held high. They can enjoy their evening to the fullest. The only thing they didn't have was a place to do it. Guess what? Now we got a place to do it. That's not anything amazing about the people of Green Tree. That's an amazing thing that God has done in people's hearts. So we're going to have appetizers out in the hallway. We're going to have a photographer out there taking pictures. We're going to be serving. And all of you that signed sign up to serve, show up, be ready to go, right? Okay, we've got a whole group of people that are going to do that. Why? Because we're the light of the world. That's not where the light of the world pat us on the back. We're trying to be a reflection of Jesus. And what I'm really most excited about, because Let's be honest, a dinner right before prom is not necessarily going to change anybody's life. But there's about a dozen teachers from Kirkwood High School that are going to come and serve as well. And I don't know if they're believers or they're not believers, but they've heard about this and they've said, there's something different. I want to be part of that. That sounds right to me. Why does it sound right? Because everybody at the end of the day has a God-shaped hole in their heart and they know the truth when they hear it and they see the truth, and they, and they can grasp, grasp the outer edges of it. We're to be the light of the world. We're to point people to the grace and the mercy of God, to our neighbors, to our coworkers, to our fellow students. Are they praising God because of our love for Jesus and our love for this broken world? How are we going to apply this into our branching out series? Let me give you three observations, we'll wrap it up. Uh, and these come from John Stott, I was studying Stott this week as I was was rereading this passage, and I read some of his application, and I just said, you know, I can't do any better, so I'm going to give him credit, uh, but I'm going to use his applications. The first is this. We have to understand there's a fundamental difference between Jesus' disciples and the philosophy of this world. There just is. Our goal is not to be a chameleon. Our goal is not to blend in so much that we don't look any different. There will be times when the world applauds our efforts. There will be other times when the world says, church, you've got it wrong. In fact, there'll be other times when the loudest voices in our culture condemn us as intolerant and hateful people and demand that we go in the opposite direction in which we go. And at that moment, we have to politely decline and continue to follow Jesus. It isn't always simple. It isn't always easy. But we have to understand that there is a fundamental difference between the mind of God and the broken mind of this world. Secondly, we must accept the distinction that Jesus puts upon us. And read that carefully, friends. You don't take up this distinction as your own. You're not better than anybody else. You're not holier than thou. In fact, well, probably a lot of us are, are less holy than, than most other people. Jesus draws this distinction. Why? He says the world needs to see what it means for people to give themselves to me in wholehearted devotion and follow me so that their eyes will be turned not to you, but to me. And we must be willing to accept that distinction. And then thirdly, we must embrace the twofold identity. We need to be salty folks, which can have a negative connotation, that we're slowing the corruption and the decay that sin causes in the world around us every day. But also that we embrace the positive side of the light that shows the pathway to salvation. So back to where we started. What's it like living next door to me? Would you like to be your neighbor? Do you think if you were, you would see some humility, love, a firm conviction of the gospel, a service of others while seeking the purity of Christ? Or if you live next door to you, do you think you might be confused because the message said one thing, but the life didn't seem to be any different? We're going to conclude this morning with a prayer of confession, and we're going to, here's how we're going to do this. In just a minute, I'm going to be quiet, which I know is hard for you to imagine, but I am. Uh, and we're going to put a prayer on the screen, and it's several pages, like about four pages long, and I just want you to read it silently to yourself. And after we've gone through all four pages, if you would like that to be your confession this morning... We're going to go back through, and I'm going to read it out loud, and I'll invite you to join me. But first of all, I'm just going to be quiet and let you read this prayer silently. Okay, let's go back to page one. And you can remain seated. You can stand if you want. You can kneel, whatever posture you would like to take. But if you'd like to make this your prayer of confession uh, with me this morning, let's read and pray together. Lord Jesus, you have called us to be witnesses for you in our communities, neighborhoods, schools, and places of business. You have taught us that we are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. You not only taught us this, but you also set an example for us to follow. You perfectly loved God the Father with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Because of this, you also perfectly loved your neighbor as yourself. We confess that we have not been faithful to your calling. We have often ignored the spiritual need of those around us. We have turned a deaf ear to those who ask questions of our faith. We have self-righteously judged others instead of humbly sharing the good news of your gospel we have excused ourselves from following your directive to be witnesses of your grace forgive us for our callous indifference to the spiritual well-being of our generation have mercy on us for failing to love god and our fellow man by neglecting to share the good news of jesus in place of our cold hearts Give us hearts that burn with your compassion for the lost, Holy Spirit, fill us with love for those around us and create within us a longing for others to experience the grace and mercy of God. This we pray in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. Father, we pray this morning that our hearts would be unified under your gospel, not under the banner of Green Tree Community Church or any denomination, but under your teaching, your sacrifice, your spirit, you have emphatically told us that we are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. Father, as we have just confessed, that something to which we do not live up, we fail, we fall short, and sometimes we just turn a deaf ear. So, Lord, if we are to branch out to truly seek, to be a representative of your son, our Lord Jesus, and our generation. It will be because your spirit fills us, your word teaches us, controls us, and moves us, that we would reflect his glory. To this end, we pray that you would make this a reality in our lives as individual disciples, as well as this small community of believers called Green Tree Community Church. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.